0: We're going to continue our series on spiritual warfare tonight uh, from Ephesians uh, chapter 6 as we're looking, taking a, a week each looking at the armor of God. And so if you will open with me to Ephesians 6, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but I want to start again in what has been our uh, theme verse, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 10 really these are the two uh, passages in the New Testament that, that really outline, that really deal with this topic of spiritual warfare. Though as, as we looked at in the first week, what I said then was that all the Christian life is spiritual warfare. And, and so though, though this, these two passages address it specifically and, and, and talk about our Christian life, ...in terms of spiritual warfare, really every time we endeavor to live for Christ, it's a battle. Anytime we endeavor to live out our faith in this fallen and broken world... ...we can expect and anticipate there to be some resistance. And so all of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. And so let's look at this uh, theme verse again, and then we'll look at Ephesians 6. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, that's though we live in these fleshly bodies, this material world, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh or carnal or material, so we're not talking about uh, natural battle, we're not talking about natural warfare, Paul here is saying. But our weapons have divine power. That's God's power. Amen? To destroy strongholds, encampments where the enemy, are, the enemy of our souls, Satan and, and demons. That, Satan and demons are not just, you know, something that, you know, was invented so that people could have fun on October the 31st and, and dress up and go get candy. There is a real devil there are real fallen angels, and, and they have taken territory. They have strongholds. And he says that these weapons have God's power to destroy those places where the enemy is entrenched in people's lives. Amen. How many of you are a believer today because God destroyed some strongholds in your life? Amen. And he says that we, going on, he says, we destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. That that the way the enemy works and the way the enemy uh, binds us and the way the enemy attacks us and the way the enemy gets strongholds in our lives is through thoughts, is through deceptions, is through lies, is through deceit. And the way and the weapons that God has given us is primarily the truth of his word. And so the weapons that we have are powerful to dismantle the attacks of the enemy. Ephesians 6, let's flip over there this evening. Again, we, we need to be reminded every day that there is a fight that is waging around us, there is a battle that is going on. It is not a battle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. People are not our enemies. That's why we looked at today, Jesus even taught, look, you're to love everybody. Your enemy is not people. Your enemy is the devil. Demonic powers. And there's demonic influences in our world try to exert themselves in our lives. We see the demonic influence even in our own culture today. Amen? What was once hidden is now done in public. The the things that used to take place in a dark alley are now celebrated on Main Street in the public square. The, The demonic forces in our world aren't even hiding anymore. And if you can't see that, I don't know what rock you're living under. God bless you. Many of God's people, they don't even see that what's happening in our culture is demonic. Many of God's people aren't even aware of what's happening. And those that are aware don't know how to respond. But uh, 2 Corinthians 10 says that God has given us powerful weapons to wage victorious warfare against those who are under the influence and those demonic forces and powers. And so as we turn to Ephesians 6, we see what Paul has been talking about here, and he he gives it the the terminology of the armor of God, the equipment that we need to wage war in spiritual battles. This armor of God, yes, there is a spiritual battle, and we would be foolish to enter into the battlefield naked and unarmed. Many believers today are open to the attacks of the enemy because they have not rightfully appropriated what Paul talks about here in Ephesians 6, this armor of God. And so in verse 10 he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This, this battle that we're fighting, we will not win it if we try to fight it in our own strength. If we try to just dig in and, and use our willpower and, and use our strength. Listen, my, my willpower doesn't even save me from the buffet line, okay? My, my willpower only goes so far. If I am going to, to successfully push back the forces of darkness... In my own life, I have to do it in God's strength. I have to do it with God's power. So therefore, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has plans for your life. I know it's a famous Christian thing to say God has a plan for your life. And that's true, amen? Amen. But you know who else has a plan for your life? The devil has a plan for your life. Maybe we ought to put that on some bumper stickers. The devil has a plan for your life. And the Bible says that we need to not be ignorant of his schemes, of his plans, of the way that he works. And so, as we put on the whole armor of God, we're able to stand against his plans, stand against his attacks. And again, in this passage on the armor of God, he uses this word stand four times. I shared with you before that the reason why it's important that we stand against the enemy is because at the end of the battle, the one who is still standing is the one who is victorious. The one who is standing is the one that is victorious in the fight and so when Paul here is talking about standing against the enemy he's talking about waging a battle that is victorious against the devil for we do not wrestle verse 12 against flesh and blood that's people that's that's the the things that we can see with our natural eye but against our battle is against again these demonic forces he labels them here the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When Paul talks about the heavenly places, he, he, doesn't, have, he, uh, he doesn't have the, the Greek idea of, of heaven, you know, the little fat babies on a harp floating on the clouds. That's not his view that he has of heaven. Heaven. when he's talking about the heavenly places, he's talking about the spiritual places, the supernatural world, that there are these demonic forces, these powers that lend their power to advance dark agendas. I mean, isn't it so... I'm getting off off my notes here tonight, but isn't it so incredible how much wickedness has been advanced so quickly. So quickly. So that to even say crazy things like men can't have babies, people look at you, half the country looks at you like you just got off a ship from Mars or something. They look at us like we're crazy because we don't think men can have babies. Because we think that there's actually something called a mother who can nurture a child and and bring life into the world. This glorious thing. And and that, that so quickly the world has been turned upside down. How is that possible? There are demonic forces at work lending their power to these ideologies. Now, we don't have to be afraid. As God's people, we don't have to be afraid because we have the power of Christ at work in our lives. But we do need to be aware that what is going on is demonic. And for too long, the church has been asleep. I I will put myself in that Camp of those who were asleep for too long. The fact that the church was not more appalled at the bloodshed happening every day in our world for 60 years, 60 million babies in our nation. It's unthinkable, dying the most horrific of deaths. And, and the church in large part was silent. We were not gripped, but, but that is demonic, that is child sacrifice. It's, it's Molech worship. You read about it in the Old Testament. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just rebranded as women's health care. And they're going after kids today. The ones that somehow survived the Holocaust of abortion, they're now going after in kindergarten with what they call gender-affirming health care, trying to sterilize and neuter our young people so that they can't reproduce, so that the earth will not be filled with the image-bearers of God. It's demonic. It is absolutely demonic. And, and what I'm trying to impress upon you is, is the, the, the way that this has so quickly, so quickly influenced our culture shows us that these are demonic forces at work But we have a set of powerful weapons to do battle with these cosmic powers, with these demonic forces. But we must use these weapons. So verse 13, I haven't even finished reading the text tonight. Verse 13, therefore... In in light of the fact that there are cosmic spiritual forces waging war in the heavenly places, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Are we living in the evil day? Yes or no? Yes, we are. And having done all to stand, stand firm, therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness... The saints. Tonight we're looking at verse 15 specifically as we look at this third piece of the armor of God. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mark looked at the breastplate of right, or the belt of truth rather. And then last week, Pastor Mike looked at the breastplate of righteousness. Tonight we're looking at verse 15, what has been labeled gospel shoes. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I have three Ps for you tonight on this verse 15, on these gospel shoes, if you will, to make it easy to remember and to make my Bible school teacher, Brother David Cook, very proud. I have three Ps here tonight. The first P is the word paradox, the second is proclamation, and the third is preparedness. Tonight we're going to look at the paradox, the proclamation, and the preparedness that Paul here is talking about having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. The paradox... A paradox, if you're not familiar with that term, the definition is a paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A a seemingly self-contradictory statement that when you look at it, it is actually well-founded and true. True. Now I see a paradox in this passage, especially dealing in verse 15 as Paul here talks about the shoes for your feet put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I see a paradox there. Can you spot it? Anybody see the paradox? A seemingly self-contradictory statement? Well, what are we talking about? This, This whole series is on spiritual warfare. Paul's whole passage here is on spiritual warfare. And here now he talks about not the gospel of warfare, but the gospel of peace. In the middle of this passage on spiritual warfare against fighting against demons and tearing down strongholds, Paul calls the gospel, the good news, the gospel of peace. And I have to wonder, just as we're sort of looking at this on the surface level, I have to wonder if it is the gospel of peace, and and of course it is because Paul says that it is, but if it's the gospel of peace, why is it that everywhere Paul goes, what do we find happening? Do we find peace? Do we find kumbaya? No, what do we find? It's chaos. It's conflict everywhere he goes with the gospel. It produces the opposite of peace, but conflict and and spiritual warfare. If you just look at, at Paul's life, just a few examples, everywhere this guy goes. From the very first time, when he, from the, fir- the very beginning when he, when he comes to Christ and Jesus saves him there in Damascus. He's only there a few days and they're already trying to kill him. Now he went there to kill Christians. And on that road Jesus saved him. How many of you were on a, on a different road but Jesus saved you? Amen. So he immediately begins to preach about the one that saved him. He goes from being a a persecutor of the church to someone who proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. And immediately there's conflict. Immediately the Jews in that town who who reject his message want to kill him. Just like he was wanting to kill believers. And so he has to escape Damascus. He has to climb over the wall at night and be let down in a basket. He goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He tries to join the apostles. They don't want him to join. They're afraid of him. Barnabas vouches for him and so he's able to join the church there in Jerusalem. He's only there a few days and the Jews that don't believe in the Messiah, they want to kill him. So he has to flee Jerusalem. Well, he goes on his first missionary journey. We find him in Antioch. He's driven out of that region, an attempt made on his life. He goes to Iconium. They try to stone him and he escapes. He leaves Iconium and he goes to Lystra where the unbelieving Jews from Antioch and Iconium then track him down in Lystra and they actually stone him and take him out with the city trash and leave him there for dead in the dump. God raises him up and heals him miraculously. And you know what he does? He dusts himself off and he goes right back into the city and starts preaching again. And you know what he's preaching? The gospel of peace. That's what he's preaching. He's preaching the gospel of peace, but everywhere he goes with the gospel of peace, he's beaten, thrown into jail, and people are trying to kill him. Well, what is this gospel of peace? That that's the paradox. It is a gospel of peace, but it stirs up conflict everywhere it goes. That's a paradox. What is this gospel of peace? Well, that's the second, the proclamation. The proclamation. And Paul explained this earlier in Ephesians, if you'll flip back to chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. He's speaking here to, again, this mostly Gentile congregation here in Ephesus. And in verse 12, Ephesians 2.12, he encourages these Gentile believers to remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's the the blessings of Israel, the blessings God had poured out on his people And that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And that we had no hope and were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here he's talking about the hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles and also the hostility that exists between us and God. That in his body has broken down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that's talking there about all of the, the purification rites and all the sacrificial system and, and all of the, the different ways that, that uh, God had ordained that people could have their sin atoned for under the old covenant that because of what Christ has done as the final sacrifice, all of that has been done away with. Amen. Amen. So that Jesus on the cross could declare, it is finished. And that he might create in himself one new man. A new humanity Christ is creating in himself in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the proclamation. That is what Paul went preaching. He went preaching Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the one that shed his blood for our sins. Jesus the one who laid his life down, who took the stripes upon his back, who took our sin upon his shoulder, so that we could have peace with God. You see, before we were strangers, before we were enemies of God. Before we were, as he says in, in Ephesians chapter 2 earlier, children, of wrath that we deserved as God's lawbreakers, we broke God's law all of us have sinned all of us have transgressed God's law all of us have gone astray as Isaiah says as sheep who go astray from their shepherd all of us have lived for our own glory and not God's glory but God sent his son because of the great love that he has for us Even while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us to make peace with God. Though I deserve God's justice because of Christ, I have received God's mercy. Though I was at war with God by my very nature, I now have peace with God the Father. And it is all because of the motivating factor behind all of it was Christ's love for us. That he would lay down his own life so that his enemies could become his family. That is the message. And now that Christ has died for our sins, we must repent of our sin And trust in Christ. Receive him as our Savior. Receive him as our Lord. Receive him as the Messiah that the prophets had prophesied about. This is the message of peace. How can you have peace with God? There's only one way. It's through the shed blood, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God. So why does this good news, this gospel message, this good news, this is good news. I can have peace with God. This is such good and glorious news. What do I have to do to to receive this peace? What do I have to do to receive this reward? Nothing. (laughs) You have to do nothing. It is a free gift of the grace of God. This this gift that is worth more than all the money in the world could buy, God gives it away to all mankind freely as a gift of his grace. What good and glorious news. So why is it that everywhere Paul goes with this good and wonderful and glorious news of peace with God through what Christ has done Why does this message of peace produce conflict? Well, I want to show you. John chapter 5. We see this conflict that Jesus has between the unbelieving... I use that term carefully. The unbelieving Jewish leadership in Jesus' day and this conflict between that leadership and Jesus himself. And here in John 5, we we see a, a particular example of this conflict. And starting in verse 44... speaking to them about faith, about believing upon him. He says, "How?" and and Jesus is addressing the, the scribes and the Pharisees that are attacking him. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, There is one who accuses you, Moses. Speaking of the the books of the Bible that Moses wrote, that, that the law of God given through Moses, that that is what accuses them. Jesus says, I don't need to go to the Father and accuse you. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Look at this, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, the issue here was not that the the Jewish leadership in Jesus, the issue is not that they believed the Old Testament, but they just didn't believe in Jesus. No, the reason they didn't believe in Jesus was because they didn't believe in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, you don't don't even believe Moses. You claim to believe them. You claim to teach them, but you don't. And in fact, you're using Moses, you're using God's law to glorify yourself. Isn't that what he says? You seek the glory that comes from men, not the glory of God. And this is why... Jesus and the Jewish leadership had conflict because they were unbelieving. They claimed to believe in God, but they didn't. A lot of of Christians don't understand this. They think that, well, they believed in the Old Testament and Jesus kind of came and changed everything up on them and and they just weren't ready to receive it and they, they were trying to be faithful to God and they just didn't understand. No, they hated God. They hated his word. They used it. To glorify themselves. If they loved God, Jesus says they would love Him. He's God in the flesh, but they put Him on a tree. So it's not that they believed, they didn't believe. Jesus here claims, he tells them, You don't believe Moses, that's why you don't believe me. And so now here, because they're using God's law to glorify themselves, Now as that message goes out, the message of the gospel, Jesus the Messiah, that we can have peace with God through his sacrifice. Everywhere Paul goes, there are those true believers in God, those true Jews who hear that message and they respond in faith because they believed in Moses and they see that Moses pointed to Christ. And so we see that everywhere Paul goes, There's a group of Jewish believers who believe in God and they receive the message of Jesus the Messiah. But the unbelieving Jews who were only using God for their own glory, they're the ones who reject Christ. They're the ones who are in conflict. Because the gospel of peace, what it does is it humbles the sinner, it humbles the sinner. The gospel of peace with the law of God preached, it shows us, it exposes our sinful condition. And so if you are in religion for your own glory, guess what you're going to hate? You're going to hate the gospel. Because the gospel humbles the sinner and it exalts the Savior. You see, for the self-righteous, for those who want the glory that belongs only to God... They are enemies of the cross and they are enemies of the gospel. And so wherever the gospel of peace goes, the gospel of peace that humbles the sinner and exalts the Savior, it stirs up conflict. The unbelieving Jews are exposed for their hypocrisy as they begin to persecute the Messiah's apostles. Because the gospel of peace leaves no glory for anyone but Christ. And so as Paul goes around proclaiming this message, it's not Paul that they're rejecting, it's Christ that they're rejecting. And again, it's not all the Jews that reject. Many of them receive their Messiah with joy and with gladness. And they too are then persecuted by those unbelieving who were only using the Mosaic law for their own glory. And they recognized in this message of peace with God that they would be stripped of their own positions of prominence earned through their self-righteousness and they would have none of that. And that is why this message of peace even to this day will stir up conflict because the good news is that Jesus died for our sin. That's the good news. But to a world that wants to believe that there's no such thing as sin to a world that loves the sin more than the Savior, it's going to stir up some conflict. Which leads us to our third P tonight. The first was the paradox. The second, the proclamation that we can have peace with God. And the third is preparedness. Again, back to Ephesians Six fifteen, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness or the preparedness given by the gospel of peace. Now here Paul is no doubt drawing on the languages of Isaiah 52. I want to turn over there quickly and, and read uh, for you this prophetic declaration from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 52. Paul is no doubt drawing on this imagery as he outlines being prepared by the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of the watchmen, they lift up their voice together, for they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the ...of our God. Paul here is drawing upon this prophetic declaration of salvation. This prophetic declaration that even all the ends of the earth... ...will hear about the great salvation... ...that Yahweh will perform when he comes to Zion. And the language here is in in verse 7 again... ...how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news... You see, in the ancient world, we didn't have telephones. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have text message, right? So for good news to travel, it had to travel by foot. It's the only way it could go. And so when there was a battle that was waging, they would send a messenger back to the city to give news on how the battle was going. And when they would go and there would be a victory, they would come with good news, good tidings, a gospel proclamation, a good message. And a message here, he says, of peace. That there is peace, that there is victory. And as that message would go, he would, messenger would go, he would go proclaiming that message that the victory has been won, that the battle has been won. And that now there is peace. And Paul is drawing on this language and he says, as we fight in these spiritual battles, we need to go out proclaiming this message of peace. Because the battle has been won. Because Satan has been defeated. Because Jesus is victorious. We go preaching now. You can have peace with God. You can be set free of the power of Satan, of the power and the forces of darkness. And this is good and glorious news. And so we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to present and to share this good news of peace anytime and anywhere. This is part of how we wage spiritual warfare. That we have the gospel always at the ready, always on our lips. So as he talks about having feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, he's talking about a runner who would run out with good news, declaring the victory of the king. We too should everywhere we go always be ready... To share the good news of the victory of King Jesus. The good news of the victory of all victories. Of the king of all kings. That Satan is defeated. And that we can have peace. You can have peace with God. You see part of the reason why I believe that the demonic forces in our world and in our culture have been so successful... Is because the church has been so silent. When what we are to do as spiritual warfare, we're to be ready everywhere we go to proclaim this gospel message, this good news of peace with God. We sang this song a couple times today that we are not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed of the one who saved our lives. Paul says that in, in Romans 1, he says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, of this proclamation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation." You See, the reason why the devil is just wreaking havoc in our world is the church is being silent and not proclaiming this good news. It's the gospel that's the power unto salvation. But the devil is a liar, the devil is a schemer, the devil is a trickster, and he tells us things like, well, they're not going to believe it anyway. Nobody's going to believe it. Who's going to believe you? And and you're going to share the gospel, really, after what you did last week? And he heaps upon you condemnation after condemnation after condemnation to try to silence you. To try to stop the church from proclaiming the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. If we want to see God move in our country, in our families, in our communities, we must always be ready. We must go ready, prepared to share the gospel of peace, to share it in love, to share it with joy. Aren't you happy about what Jesus has done for you? Just let that overflow a little bit in your life. And do not let the enemy silence you. We see that going on in our world today. What do we call it? It's called cancel culture. But we must not be silent with the gospel. We must always be ready. We must be prepared with this proclamation. What glorious good news we have to share. The victory has been won. Our king is victorious. Satan has been defeated. And you can have peace with God. And we have the great privilege of being able to share that message. There are many people today that are burdened by sin, they are burdened by guilt, they are burdened by shame. And we are the only ones who have the answer. We are the only ones who have the message that can alleviate that burden of sin and shame. Because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took our burden of sin and shame on his own shoulders and carried it to the cross to be crucified, to be nailed to that tree, to be buried And never to rise again. Our sin is buried with Christ. When Christ rose, he did not rise bearing our sin. He rose in victory. Having defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell. And Christ calls us as part of our battle that we wage every day. To run with that message to go proclaiming that message. And let us take that message of peace with God through the shed blood of Christ everywhere we go. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are engaged in a great cosmic battle. But the victory has already been won. I pray that you would help us to proclaim this great message. Everywhere we go, that we would be prepared, that we would be ready. That we would go out like a runner with good news to share. That we would look for opportunities, not shy away from them. And Lord, as we share this message, as we proclaim this good news, we do so in faith as it is the power of God, it is what the, the means by which you have ordained to call dead men back to life. We thank you for the eternal life that we have through you. As we go out, we go out energized by your spirit to proclaim this good news. I ask for your blessing to be upon us as we go, that you would watch over us and keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.